from the Solarize studios of Rodale Institute Radio and Television at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. It's time for another killer episode of Chemical Free Horticultural Hijinks. You bet your garden. Are some of your beds under attack by nasty weeds like quack grass and thistle? Does your garden have so many disease problems the Mayo Clinic keeps stopping by? I'm your host, Mike McGrath, and on today's You Bet Your Garden, we'll reveal a somewhat easy cure if you're willing for that plot to take a summer off. Otherwise, it's a fabulous phone call show, cats and kittens. That's right. Yes, we will take that heap and help of your telecommunicated questions, comments, tips, tricks, suggestions, and cleverly calculated contributions. So keep your eyes and or ears right here, true believers, because it's all coming up faster than you harnessing the power of the sun to make a fresh start right after this. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Lehigh Valley Health Network. In life, we have many kinds of partners, school bus partners, business partners, even gardening partners. Shouldn't you have one for the most important aspect of life, your health? Lehigh Valley Health Network, your health deserves a partner. Welcome to You Bet Your Garden. From the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA, I am your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up a little later in the show, we will talk about soil solarization, a highly effective organic technique that is greatly misunderstood. We're also going to take more of your fabulous phone calls, but first, let me touch on this week's winners of our, quote, book club, where you send me a clever postcard and I give you a book from my office so that I can clean up my office. We got three winners this week. Clementine Brown in Kirkland, Washington, who sent a beautiful postcard of San Juan Island in Washington State. I mean, if you're doing a bucket list of all the states in the U.S., you haven't been to Washington State. It is just drop-dead gorgeous. Um, Joan McPeak in Philly, she knew she was boxing it up when she sent us a beautiful postcard of Franklin Field on the West Philadelphia campus of the University of Penn, where they hold the fabulous Penn Relays every year. You know you were going to win, didn't you, Joan? And finally, Catherine LaCroix in Nashville sent a fabulous promotional postcard from Penguin Books. I don't know if they still do the imprint, but they were all over the paperbacks and pocketbooks of my youth. And her postcard uh, shows not only the penguin, but also, also, also the puffin and the, the pelican that were imprints as well. And I haven't decided who gets what yet, but we got a beautiful book on roses, an inspiring book called Grace from the Garden, and a, uh, uh, it's called Safe Sex in the Garden, kids. But it's about allergies. It's about pollination, which pollens we're most prone to developing a reaction to, and how to plant an allergy-free garden. If that's not getting sent to you, you may want to look it up online or in a library. It's a great way to get rid of the nastiest pollens, at least on your own landscape. We're going to be taking postcards for a couple more weeks, not too much longer. I'm starting to see light at the end of the tunnels in my office. I'm tired of crawling through those tunnels. Send that postcard 
to You Bet Your Garden, care of Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA, 18015. They don't have to be clever, but it sure don't hurt. And now, on with the show. Todd, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Well, thank you, Mike. I'm really happy to be on the show. I've been a longtime listener going back to probably the early 2000s when we lived in Stewartsville, New Jersey, right across the way from Easton and could pick up WHYY. That's amazing. That's amazing because the show show only started in uh, uh, 1998. So you've been there since almost the beginning. I have, and I've listened on a lot of different public radio stations, Sirius Satellite Radio, and now I almost exclusively listen on the podcast when I put her around the house on the weekends. You and about a million other people. It's pretty amazing. All right, where are you? Uh, where are you, Todd? So now I live in Chandler, Arizona, and that is a suburb of Phoenix. So I we're, thought so, yeah. Yeah, we're in the, we're in the desert, so mm-hmm. our elevation is about 1,200 feet, and although most of the year the weather and climate is wonderful, we do live on the surface of the sun about four months of the year, and uh, that's a little bit of our problem, I guess, is that I'm calling about my lawn. Mm-hmm. We moved into a, uh, a newer house uh, a couple of years ago, downsized, and I hadn't had a lawn in a long time and inherited this one. Uh, here in the Phoenix area, we have Bermuda grass for the most part, right. and that's great during the summer, but then during the winter, it goes dormant, so sometimes people just leave it yellow and, and let it stay dormant, and sometimes people overseed with rye grass. And either way, my problem is really uh, it's an established lawn, but not well-established. And what I mean by that is there are some bare spots that are there and maybe some other types of grass that are mixed in it, and really a big problem, too, is weeds. So I'm kind of looking towards uh, spring right now. I let it go dormant in in this winter, and I can see the bare spots, and I can see some of the weeds, and I want to just prepare myself to bring it back as much as possible uh, for this summer. And I'd like to fill it in so I can crowd out those weeds and, um, you know, again, not have to worry about herbicides or anything like that. I'm sure you don't want me to to put on the grass to get rid of the weeds. No, especially especially in your climate um herbicides can have dramatically negative effects uh, you know because the the grass is already stressed you know it's um it's it's unusual that your home even came with a lawn now you've made the decision to keep the lawn right you're not going to go into xeriscaping or desert scaping or anything like that yeah that's a great question we again we just moved to this home about two years ago we had a uh, another home in in chandler and we did not have grass and we had rocks and everything else and you know, I, I do worry about conservation and, mm-hmm. and water use and such, but we would like to keep it for at least a few years. We have a granddaughter that lives near us, and the mm-hmm. dogs like to play on the lawn. And it's a small lawn, and I'm very, you know, I'm very conscious about making sure not to overwater and that I mow the right length and all that type of thing. So at, at least for now, maybe eventually we'll go to zero escape, but at, at this point I'd like to keep it if at all possible. Okay, I think that's very reasonable. Now, what do you do? to water it uh, because your water that comes into your household is hugely expensive, right? It's, uh, you know, <laughs> it is expensive. Uh, probably should be more expensive when you live in the desert. Uh, we, we do have uh, reservoirs and, and the water coming down from the mountains with the snow melt and stuff, and it is a bit of a concern. Uh, what we do with watering, of course, is that I have a, a smart gauge um, timer 
mm-hmm. that will uh, turn off the water if it's going to be rainy, which, of course, doesn't happen that often. But during right. the winter, we get rains and we get our monsoons in the summer. So that, you know, helps us. And I, I water about every three to four days and, um, you know, just kind of, again, watch what we're doing to make sure that we're conserving as much as possible. But it is yeah, it is a concern, again, to, to manage the, the amount of water that we're putting on the lawn. I do let it grow, I think, about three inches before I mow it. So that helps to keep the moisture in, I believe. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, again, just try to try to monitor it. It always drives me crazy when I see a neighbor who's got the sprinklers going the day after it rains or, oh, or for God. too long or, or getting on the on the sidewalk and not on the lawn. You can't cure stupid. Um, have you thought about or experimented with any sort of gray water using the water from your washing machine, from your shower and or bathtub, from your kitchen sink uh, to do this chore? You know, that we really haven't looked into. Um, something probably should. I know I grew up in Tucson, and they're very uh, conscious about runoff and such and there's a lot more of um that type of uh, you know rain buckets and such down there mm-hmm. here it's not as common so i guess it's been out of sight out of mind but something i should probably look into yeah um i'm going to recommend uh you go online and buy an old book i co-wrote with robert rodale in 1990 it's called save three lives it was robert's uh plan for famine prevention in the third world. And this was making every home self-sustainable. And in sub-Saharan Africa, one of the big issues was water. And so we devoted an entire chapter to water harvesting, where people had fabulous gardens, any kind of plants they wanted um, in regions that got four inches of rain a year. Because they never let any of the rain escape They would, like, tamp down the areas um, of just open space and make little channels so that when it did rain, everything would be diverted towards, in their case, a single fig tree or a date tree. But in your case, it could be towards the lawn, or maybe you have some trees as well. And, of course, rain barrels um, are easy-peasy. The only thing that people often don't think about is you want to put them up as high as possible so that you can use gravity to deliver the water to where you want it to go. But it would be very simple to line up a couple of rain barrels, have them fill up when you do get those monsoons, and then just put a hose on the spigot and let it slowly drip onto the lawn overnight every once in a while. And again, once you start using gray water, that goes immediately out onto your plants. You can't store gray water. You can store rainwater, but if you store gray water, it turns into black water. So what you want to do is ha- simply have a setup, again, using as much gravity as you can. Where, think about it. Every time you take a shower, you water the lawn. Every time you do a load of clothes, you water the lawn. Every time you do your pots and pans, you water the lawn. Uh, you don't have to use from the dishwasher. Obviously, you don't want to divert the toilet water there. But think about all the sources of really clean water that otherwise are going um, down the drain, being wasted. Uh, you, if, if you put some thought into it, and with very minimal investments, you would never spend another dime of your own money watering not only your lawn, but any other plants you have. 
Now, um, you're saying your, um, your lawn goes dormant in the winter. That kind of surprises me because I can remember being in Chandler in February um, for a conference and it was 85 degrees every day. <laughs> yeah, we do get we do get those days. Absolutely. I, it's probably, uh, you know, again, December, January. Uh, that's probably the, the coldest, obviously. And, and they do do they Most of them turn yellow. There'll be some green spots and, and it may depend upon the subspecies of Bermuda. I'm not sure. But right, uh, right now, my backyard has some green spots in it, but it's mostly yellow. OK. Um, and how long does it go off its green? No more than two or three months. That's about right. Yeah, it's about two or three months. So we put in, last year we did put in the overseeding with the ryegrass in the backyard, but it's really not worth it, I don't think. We no. did it in the front yard this year. It looks nice, but again, not worth the work. Rye's it really not, doesn't take that much more water, though, is the interesting yeah. thing I found. Rye's not a good, uh, rye is not a good lawn grass. If you're talking about a little girl and her dog rolling around on it, rye tends to be pretty sharp. Yeah, um, that's true. What I would suggest, in addition uh, to perhaps delivering more water to the lawn without using up any of your household resources, have you considered zoysia grass? You know, I'm not that familiar with it. Um, something also to look into. I, I, I can't say that I have looked into it as yet. I, I know that um, Bermuda, again, is predominant here, but I'm, I'm open. Ears are open. Bermuda is a needy grass. Um, it needs, a, technically, it needs a lot of food and water. Uh, zoysia grass, which everybody thinks was developed in southern Florida, but it's actually, I believe, from Vietnam, is a, a warm season grass that is established vegetatively. That is, you buy a big roll of it, like sod, and they give you a tool to punch out circles. And you clean up your, your area as much as you can, pull out the old grasses, rake them away. But you don't have to get rid of them. And as soon as things warm up, you would start to plant these zoysia plugs. And the more plugs you install, the quicker they will fill in. Zoysia, I know that uh, Bermuda is, quote, a spreading grass. Well, zoysia makes it look um, like a five-year-old. Zoysia marches, and it covers the turf. It can take a shorter cut, even in your climate, and it, after it's established, it is not water-needy. And honestly, uh, in your area, because of the extreme growing season, you'd probably have to feed it once a year. Uh, but my parents had a zoysia grass lawn outside our house, and we never fed it. And it took over the neighbor's lawn. So um, I think, and it, it would it would fill in. It would be a, a seamless mat of green, and it's also a tough grass that if the dog is a little large, it's going it's going to resist being torn up. Okay. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. I I had no idea, especially again if it's a little less. Um water needy that that's obviously an advantage as well also perhaps now this is a grass that i'm only familiar with from book learning but take a look at centipede grass centipede. yeah okay. there there are not a lot of places in the country where this warm season grass can really thrive um, but if you're one of them 
this is a grass that needs almost no food, no water, and I believe it is native to the Americas, one of the few grasses that is. Most of them come from Europe or the tropics. Great. So I've got zoysia centipede and for Christmas, save three lives. Yes, exactly right. I think you'll love the book. It's um, that one chapter on water harvesting. I was in uh, Colorado a couple of springs ago and asked to deliver a talk on their local gardening. And I just kept throwing out quotes from the book because I said, I'm sorry, uh, Colorado, but where we are right now at 8,000 feet in the desert, um, you're a third world country. So all of, the, <laughs> all of these techniques are going to help you out. That's awesome. Great. Oh. Well, I think I've got some work to do, but I appreciate the guidance. All right. Good luck, Todd. Thank you so much. Take care, take man. Bye-bye. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and remind all of you that I will appear on Saturday and Sunday, January 25th and 26th at the Home and Garden Show at the Mohegan Sun Arena in Wilkes-Barre, PA. But don't go looking for all the details at the events section of our website just yet because we'll be right back with the surprising success behind solarization and more of your fabulous phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute TV and Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Rodale Institute. Since 1947, the Rodale Institute has been growing the organic movement through research, farmer training, and consumer education. Learn more about local events, workshops, and tours at rodaleinstitute.org. The Rodale Institute, because the future is organic. Welcome back to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio and Television at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up later in the show, we will reveal exactly how to solarize, sanitize, and otherwise sterilize your soil to get rid of nasty weeds and even nastier disease. You won't want to miss it. And you won't. It's coming up after a couple more of your fabulous phone calls at 833-727-9588. Wayne, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Yes, thank you so much for having me on. Well, thank you so much for being had, Wayne. Where are you, man? Um, in the middle of Montana with snow on the ground, and it's actually snowing right now and icy out. Billings, Montana. Oh, wow, yeah, you get a lot of snow. Now, do you like it? Are you a skier or a winter sports guy? 
Uh, you know, it used to be. I get a little, little older and a little bit busy now. But, uh, um, you know, to, to, to survive the winter in Montana, um, I start gardens in our basement. I, it's in my manscape. Oh, okay. What are you growing? Um, all kinds of leaf lettuce and kale and arugula and some flowers. And it's a contest between compost, plants growing in, in fresh homemade compost, plus uh, hydroponics. Oh, okay. Um, wow. What do you, first, what are you using for lighting? For a budget? Lighting. Light. You know, like artificial sun. Oh, oh, oh. Um, yeah, I have a couple of different kinds of lights down there. One I got off the internet that's just a round bulb that has a, a full spectrum on it. Right. Another one is LED lights in a little square box with all the nice colors. Right. And then I went and bought one real fancy, expensive one just to test different lights. Excellent. Excellent. Um, and how are your results so far? <laughs> Actually, I had to drag my wife down in the, it's in the basement in, in my man's cave. I said, do you know these, these kale leaves are as big as my hand now? And just a few days ago, um, they weren't. So the, the roots are finally actively in the water where the plants just explode. But interesting enough is there's a cup system down there. I call it window food. It's half compost half hydroponic solution underneath the uh, compost in the second cup. Huh. So the plants get started growing in the compost, and then their roots get down to the hydroponic area. That's right. I poke a hole in the bottom, big holes in the bottom of the, of the first cup, and then the second cup has a solution in it. And it seems like once those roots hit that solution... Um, the plant explodes. Oh, that's interesting. This is, yeah. um, yeah. I, obviously, I know of complete hydroponic systems. I know of indoor growing systems that only use soil and compost. Um, but you're making a hybrid here. That's exactly right. Yeah, and uh, I'm having fun. I call it window food because I have some just growing in the window to, to see how our southern lights here that shine in our house, you know, do. do. So, yeah, we can eat most of the winter, um, some leaves. But uh, uh, aren't you getting very short hours of daylight right now? Yes, we, we are. We're down to, oh, I think we're, we're under about 12 now, so we're down to about 11 or something like that. It'll get a little bit shorter. It comes up at 6 and goes down at about 4, and, you know, just, what is it, December 21st, the shortest day? It's uh, 22nd, I believe. That, uh, that doesn't sound that different than um, Pennsylvania. I guess you got to go up... Uh, a lot more north to get the crazy hours of day. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, go to Canada. So, are you just bragging? Is there some, is there something we can do for you? You, you know, uh, um, I, I'm a pusher of compost. I have been for the last 11 years. A little background is uh, um, Farmer to Farmer has a program to send people uh, with skills overseas to help struggling people in third world countries. Right. And I've made 21 trips to 10 different countries now over the last 11 years. That's amazing. Um, where have yeah. you been? Um, mostly Africa, mm -hmm. uh, six different countries in Africa, but then some of the tropics like Jamaica and Guatemala and Nicaragua and Mexico and, and you know, you know the, the Africans. One, one trip was... Um, Five months in Africa, mostly in Rwanda. Mm, that's uh, that could be dicey. 
Yeah, uh, we love Rwanda. The the one country had a little trouble was was Ethiopia, but uh, it it it's okay. African people uh, are an amazing bunch of farmers that live without money. And uh, our very first trip to South Africa, we fell flat on our face. We're unsuccessful because we brought modern ideas that cost money. Right. And when I say they don't have money, th- some of the villages do not even generate garbage. Well, you know, it's funny that you talk about this. I just gave a talk to an international women's group about uh, a book that I wrote with Bob Rodale in 1990 called Save Three Lives, and it was about famine prevention in the third world. And Bob had exactly the same tack. He said, you can't bring farm machines over here. You can't expect them uh, to try to make this into Iowa. But if you're careful enough and you go back in their history, you will find that they had methods of water harvesting and eating wild plants and having an endless supply of firewood, which, as you know, is is one of the huge causes of soil degradation over there, cutting down too many trees. But um, there are many trees that regrow, so you can actually harvest them. And Bob and I did this... uh, book that was mostly about these solutions and they're all small scale the people don't have to buy anything you just teach them how to harvest the little rainwater that comes down you know maybe you set up a nursery um, to grow these leguminous trees for them that provide food and fodder for any animals they may have firewood and they grow back again. You can cut them um, constantly without harming them. Right, right. That's that's great. We see people, um, especially children, packing um, just sticks because everybody seems to do the same method of, of cooking, and that's usually indoors or in a little shed behind their mud hut um, with sticks and three rocks and a pot. Mm-hmm. And, and it's almost always about the same but i have another thing that that i'm really trying to push off to help everybody and it's it's connected to our our global climate uh changes going on too and i call it naked land no more (laughs) i I want them to quit burning everything they they have in their fields especially their croplands and they burn it for unusual reasons like one african told me in that in um tanzania if you don't clean your fields really, really clean, your neighbors will call you lazy. Huh. Yeah, well, there are some Super. cultural issues to deal with, that's for sure. Yeah. So I come up with something that really works because Farmer to Farmer sends us over there. even won an award for all this stuff. Uh, I had to go to D.C. and get an award for a volunteer of the year. But anyway, Good for um, I taught them, um, don't burn Money. Those three words uh, seem to resonate in them, and uh, I would take out their native money, the local money, mm-hmm. and light a match. <gasps> and here's this white guy's going to go burn some of their money. And mm-hmm. I said, every time you guys burn these fields or this organic, you know, dry vegetation here, you're burning money because I can take that and turn it into compost, which I can turn it into money. And, and they caught on right away. And even my last trip in Zambia for a month, this last August, um, somebody went over there, and there were two ladies 
that had went to my class walking down the road, and some farmer was about ready to burn his big old cornfield, all the stalks and stuff, and he ran over and chewed him out and said, don't burn money, and he quit. Excellent. Excellent. Um, congratulations. Thank you. One of the things I learned writing the book with Bob Rodale was that every time something like that happens, when a forest is clear-cut or when crop residues are burned, that helps the desert move in that much closer. Exactly. Whereby, if something is kept growing and you can enlarge the area of the growing, it actually pushes the desert back. It can make the desert recede. So anything... Yeah, Anything. It's all about the water, the water cycle. In fact, one of the other ways to, to teach the people there, because th this is um, pretty rural, primitive people. I don't call them poor anymore at all. They know how to live without. I'd rather use those terms because they just they live as they did a thousand years ago in, in some of the very rural communities, and you would understand that. But uh, anyway, um, to demonstrate this, we would uh, scratch the ground. And, and clear it off in a little square area and pour like 12 liters of water on there. Do another one where we chop down deep in the ground, pour water in there, and another one chopped down deep and then covered. I don't like the chopping down, but anyway, uh, it's covered with uh, maybe six inches of uh, dry organic matter, yep. uh, um, the mulch, the grass, whatever we can find, leaves, and uh, pour water on that and come back the next day and the one covered is still very wet. Yep. The one that was bare, chopped, it's got a little moisture, but the one that was just what I call naked land, African call it naked land, the water's all gone yes. in one day. What, what Bob called that was creating artificial springs. And oh. it's a tactic where it takes it a little bit further than you, but you've seen these handheld uh, tools where you tamp down ground well, it turns out in these tropical soils, if you tamp it down good and hard, water will run off of that. And you, yep. you make a little ditch, a very tiny little ditch, and you tamp down all around it, and then you arrange for these little ditches to bring to an area that, yes, you have dug out, and you've really pounded the ground underneath, nice and hard, and then you divert all this water that would be lost to the sand into this artificial well, this artificial spring. And as you say, it's important to put uh, material on top to prevent evaporation, um, but all of that water gets saved for use. Oh, yeah. It's, it's kind of like catching rainwater, but it's on the ground and a permaculture thing. Exactly. They're one of the most amazing stories. Uh, Two women uh, workers over there were testifying before Congress, and they came up with a plan whereby they tamped down the ground around a big open area that had uh, an area below it, like six feet lower. It was on a little bit of a cliff. And they tamped down all the area on the cliff and on the sides, and they put a barrel into the ground. And then in, in another area, they put a barrel in the ground, but they didn't tamp down any, any sand around it. They got, that night, they got a tenth of an inch of rain. 
they harvested 25 gallons of water. Oh, marvelous, marvelous. Yeah, it's so, like they, they, they tin roofed the soil to, and then guided it into a re reserve uh, storage area. And it's enough to keep a family going with livestock in areas that get four to six inches of rain a year. Because yeah. you don't waste any. So, Wayne, it sounds like you're doing great. But I would urge you, I think you would love to read the book. It's called Save Three Lives. Well, it, what was that, day three? Save Three Lives. Because we wanted to tell people you're not going to save the world. But how great would it be to save one life, to save two lives, to save three lives? Three by, lives. I don't know by endorsing these simple ideas. It was published by the Sierra Club in mm, okay. 1990. You can find used copies available online, and the primary author is Robert Rodale, with me as the secondary. Yeah, which I, I met once down in Albuquerque, shook his hand. Yeah, right. he was one of the smartest guys I ever knew. Yeah, yeah, that beautiful. Yeah, um, we have a um, uh, put together a book because the, the simplicity of this, it's dirt simple, is you make compost out of you know, the wasted rubbish laying around anywhere in the world mm -hmm. and put it on top of your poor soil and grow in that. Now, is this a real book or a pamphlet you give out? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a book called Gardening for Life. No money required. You have to have the no money required to find it. It's on Amazon. And it's after 11 years of doing this, I put all our ideas together with the African photos. That's highly illustrated mm -hmm. of people making compost and growing food and, and how a, we did the square foot garden thing. And, mm -hmm. and I, I ran into a problem with square foot. A, a fellow tapped me on the shoulder and said, Mr. Wayne, I have 10 children. I can eat that small garden in one day. Yeah. And I thought, oh, he's right. So I came home, and I carbon-loaded some compost with some other organic wasted material, and I grew 50 carrots in a square foot. That's and amazing. I did, the, I did the math on a on a four-foot by eight-foot box. Mm -hmm. His 10 children had to eat 21 carrots a day for a week. Oh, well, how terrible. All right, listen, Wayne, we got to go, but this is okay. a, um, a a remarkable story. Um, stay on the line. Our producers will make sure they have all the information on the book, and we'll put it up when this segment airs. Thank you very much. Well, thank Mike. you, sir, and thank you for the good work you're doing. Yes. All right. See you later. Bye-bye. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and announce that I will brave the month of January to appear in tropical Wilkes-Barre, PA on Saturday and Sunday, January 25th and 26th at the Home and Garden Show at the Mohegan Sun Arena. But don't go looking for all the details at the events section of our website just yet because we'll be right back with the surprising secrets behind soil solarization and more of your solarizing phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute TV and Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA.
Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in beautiful Bethlehem, PA. I'm your host, beautiful Mike McGrath, and we are in the stretch now, cats and kittens. In just a little bit, we'll get to the question of the week, which is how you can solarize all of the weed, roots, seeds, diseases, any bad stuff out of your soil. It has to be done very specifically, so make sure you stay tuned because it's coming up right after a couple more of your fabulous phone calls at 833-727-9588. Steve, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, Mike. How are you doing today? I am just ducky. Steve, thanks for asking. What can we do for... Oh, where is Steve? I'm in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Gotcha. Just outside of Philadelphia. Yep. What can we do for Steve? Well, I've been starting my own seeds forever, um, largely... Um, using advice that I've gotten from you, and I usually put them under regular old four-foot two-bulb fluorescent tubes. And, you know, I, I do all right with it. Um, usually my plants do get a little laggy, and I keep, the, I keep the, the fluorescent fixtures right up against them, which usually results in constantly having to raise them, and yeah. usually I drop, it, drop them at least once and break a few plants. Anyway, I've been looking at um, LED four-foot um, fixtures, right. which you can pick up for about 20 bucks a pop. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if, if that is a feasible alternative. I would I would imagine so. I know we've been talking about this a lot lately. Do you have any idea what the lumen rating is on the LED bulbs? 4,100. What? 4,100? 4, is that for both of them? That's for both of them, yeah. Yeah, not each. No, not either. Oh, shoo. I was going to say, Dave from Krypton. Yeah, uh, that is an excellent lumen rating for two bulbs. Now, let's go over some basics. You've been using the same shop light for how many years? Uh, the, the tubes, I replace the tubes about every two years, maybe oh, two, three okay. years. Okay. And you keep the plants up close, so you're not doing anything wrong. Now, uh, are, are you starting so many plants that some of them are on the outskirts? Yes, yes. I would be. I would probably be better off using a four-tube fixture, but I don't really have the space because I do it on a shelf up against my basement wall. Okay, that's so there's always there, yeah. There's always something on the outskirts. Yes. Yeah. So let's drop back to that. Um, flowering, fruiting plants need the most sun. Roots and shoots can do with less. So I presume you're starting mostly tomatoes, peppers, cucumbers? You got it. Yep. And do you start any lettuce greens at all? No. I plant I direct seed that. Well, you know, direct seeding is fine, but you can't get it out as early as you would like. Were to you right. were you to use the outskirts to start your first run of lettuce, that can go in the ground. It won't care how cold the ground is then, but the seed won't sprout to the soil reaches about 65 degrees, and that's going to be a long time into the spring. 
Yeah, that's a good idea. Maybe I'll try that this year. So a couple of tricks. Yeah, I urge you to get the LEDs. They sound super cool. Now, what I do with my plants, instead of raising and lowering the chains, is I start everything up high with books underneath mm. the plants. And then as the plants grow tall, I selectively pull out books, which is so much easier and less deadly than manipulating yeah. the lights, because the lights can be a little clumsy. Yes, they are. <laughs> so I urge you to try that. Now, if, if you can limit the number of plants under the lights to the ones that can be directly under the lights. And like I said, if you want to use auxiliary space, lettuce and things like that would jump up there and give you a great start on the season. Otherwise, there are ways that you can cheat. And as you know, if you listen to this show, cheaters always win. <laughs> and so one of the ways you can cheat is to expand the, oh, the wings, so to speak, of the of the light fixture itself. Some people will rig up something with like coat hangers and aluminum foil so that it goes out further and reflects the light down on the secondary plants. You can also, believe it or not, on the back end of this bookcase, put a mirror and have that mirror aimed so that it captures some of the light and it hits those side plants on the side, which can be highly effective, um, especially with peppers, which tend not to get as leggy as tomatoes. You know, they grow those leaves down, down low. So if you can reflect light onto those, I think you'll be very pleased with that. Tomatoes are the ones, they're the canary in the coal mine. They're the ones who have to be dead center. But okay. think, think about ways to radiate the light more out to the outside. Obviously, you can see how a clean mirror could be very effective if angled yeah. correctly. Um, but a lot of people who start inside will have uh, sheets of aluminum foil hanging down off the sides of their fixtures, not only to reflect more lights, again, onto the sides of the plants where... Those leaves are photosynthesizing, but it also creates kind of a, a bit of a humidity tent early on um, that also increases your chances of getting good stocky plants. Mm, another good idea. Yeah. Yeah, of course. That's why I'm here. I mean, I have no other skills. I mean, yeah. I'd be greeting people at Walmart, you know. I I, I have to admit, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of incapacitated right now, and I turned on the TV yesterday, and there was your face on TV. God, I'm I, so sorry. I'm just trying to earn a dishonest I, living. I don't mean to annoy people. You you have a really good face for radio and podcast. Oh, there you go. I wish you great failure this year. <laughs> what, one more thing. Would you think I could get away with leaving these the LEDs higher, or, or would I do the same thing and put them right up against the seedlings? I think, I think close to the seedlings. Don't forget, when we use artificial light to start seeds inside, we're trying to replicate the effects of that giant, constantly exploding nuclear reactor in mm -hmm. the sky. And I haven't done the test with LED lights, but I can tell you 
fluorescent lights, the, the lumens drops off dramatically after as little as an inch. Okay, okay. And you're not going to burn the plants. There's, there's no harm there. Uh, you do feed them at some point during their childhood, right? Yeah, yes. Okay, good. No, I think you're going to make out. Okay, that's great. Thank you very much. My as pleasure. Always. All right, it's time for the question of the week, which we're calling the rules of soil solarization. Anita in Phoenix, Arizona writes, we have Bermuda grass in our front yard and want to convert that yard to a mostly rock xeriscape to be more eco-friendly. We've read that Bermuda is a pain to kill and that solarization would be a good option considering where we live. However, it is currently January and we are not able to wait until the summer to solarize and install the new landscape. Is it possible to pull the sod up by hand now, lay the plastic to ensure we kill any leftover roots, and then lay the rocks over the plastic? Then at the end of the summer, after we're sure the grass has died, pull the rocks to the side and remove the plastic? Unfortunately, we live under the auspices of an HOA, a homeowners association, so we can't leave the front looking unfinished. Well, thank you for a timely question, Anita. There are a lot of misconceptions about soil solarization, and people who wish to try this technique should make their plans well in advance. And the planning and the loss of a bed for the summer is, or are, well worth it. Properly done, solarization can kill weeds as tough as nutsedge and diseases like verticillium, fusarium, and blight. In a normal climate, which Phoenix is certainly not, solarization of a specific area is done over the course of an entire summer. In the research I depend on for this topic, the authors recommend a timeline of 14 to 16 weeks, essentially 1st of June through the end of September. Here's the details. Remove as much material as you can from the area to be treated. In a situation like this Phoenix lawn, scalp the grass until dirt blows out the back of the mower and then rake up as much of the leftovers as you can. Till the area thoroughly and then level it perfectly, trying to achieve the maximum contact between the soil and the plastic you'll spread over it. This is the most arduous part and of course it is also the most important. Then soak this perfectly leveled area to a depth of three inches using a sprinkler or a combination of sprinklers. This will take many hours and it'll use a lot of water. But for our Phoenix friends, it'll be the last time they water this area, so don't hold back. Now comes the plastic. Clear plastic, not black. I don't care what anybody else tells you. The thinner the plastic, the better. So sheets that are a mere one mil thick are ideal. But thickness also equals risk of tears. So most people settle on a two mil thickness. Now without stepping on your perfectly level and perfectly saturated soil, stretch the clear plastic over top tightly. The researchers recommend digging trenches around the area running the plastic through the trenches, and then filling the trenches in with soil. Some people use bricks. Just make sure that plastic is tight. Next step, crack a beer. You're done all the hard work. 
When September arrives, remove the plastic. Do not till this soil. If you're in an appropriate climate, you can plant it a month later. Otherwise, wait until spring. Now, physical reality. Effective soil solarization requires a lot of sunlight essentially boiling that saturated soil. And the laws of physics are not going to budge on this to make you happy. For example, let's use Washington, D.C. as a dividing line. In a normal D.C. summer, 14 weeks should kill every weed seed and speck of disease. In my native Pennsylvania, I'd be praying for a hot, sunny summer to be able to achieve the same thing, and I'd probably go for 16 weeks. Now, as you move further north, you have to be realistic. If you don't get 14 weeks of summer, it might not work. And we're talking a full sun site, not a shady one. Laws of physics, kids. Back to Phoenix. I would think that 14 weeks beginning now would work well there. If the HOA is going to get all pissy about the plastic, despite you're doing the absolute right thing for the environment with this changeover, do what you can to stress the Bermuda grass now with two short mowings. It is at its weakest now. And then get the plastic down in June. In research performed in Arizona, solarizing the soil at the peak of your ridiculously hot summer achieved success in just six weeks. And let's be honest, are the HOA people going to be roaming around in June or July looking for trouble? No, they're going to be living in deep holes in the ground to escape the heat, or they're going to reverse snowbird to Martha's Vineyard for the summer. As your acting Philadelphia lawyer in this endeavor, I urge you to answer any questions from the HOA with two words. What plastic? Now, I also get the idea that you might think that xeriscaping means replacing water and food-hungry lawns with sand, rocks, and the occasional bleached cattle skull. Nothing could be further from the truth. Using the correct planting techniques and appropriate selection of plants, a xeriscape can be full of life. Hey, come on, you ever see the painted desert in bloom? It's breathtaking, and it's breathtaking on a couple inches of rainy year. So do some research. Ask for suggestions at local nurseries and your state extension service. The Denver Water Department, which coined the actual phrase xeriscaping, is also an excellent resource. Well, that sure was a staggeringly specific look at soil solarization now, wasn't it? Luckily for you, you can read the info over at your leisure or your leisure because the question of the week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website. Just click the link for the question of the week at our website, which is still and will forever be YouBetYourGarden.org. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden Question of the Week, and you will always find the latest question of the week. Where? At the Gardens Alive website. Yikes, my producer is threatening to poke holes in my plastic if I don't get out of this studio. We must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 833-727-9588 or send us your email, your tired, your poor, your wretched refuse, teeming, teeming towards our garden shore at ybyg at wlvt.org. Please include your location. 
You'll find all of this contact information, answers to your garden questions, audio of this show, video of this show, audio and video of old shows, and links to our internationally renowned podcast at our website, YouBetYourGarden.org. You Bet Your Garden is a half-hour public television show, an hour-long public radio show and podcast, all produced and delivered to you weekly by Rodale Institute Television and Radio in association with Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Our radio show is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. You Bet Your Garden was created by Mike McGrath. Mike McGrath was created when a rogue asteroid struck Mexico and wiped out his pet dinosaurs. Ken Queter plays our theme song. Our chief content officer is Yoni Greenbaum. Our angel of the airways is Christine Dempsey. Our engineer is cheerful Charlie Sarah. Our social media director is Amanda Norfleet. Check out her fine work at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page where you'll see my blooming bird of paradise. Our peerless princess of profound production is Tavia Minnick. Our website wonder is the lovely Nicole Harrell. Our audio editor is the also lovely Jonas Bowen. Our video editor is judicious Jake Boyer. Our harassed and harried director is Javier Diaz. Eric the half a bee is running the camera this week. Zach the Tack Wisniewski is, yeah, he's probably around here someplace. Our beloved and beleaguered CEO, Tim Fallon, who is not our executive producer, is late for a meeting and continues to deny his new career as a Middle Eastern belly dancer. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. I'm still dating my checks 2019. Actually, I'm still dating them 1967, but that's a different story. And maybe I'll tell it when I see you again next week. Yeah, 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 yeah. Ah, this is the ticket. Oh, it is, is it? Beautiful night. I got my best girl with me. Although, you know what could make it even better? Let me guess. Some mint chocolate chip. Bingo. You always get a little sappy when that sweet tooth kicks in. Partners since the beginning. Throughout life, you have many different partners. Shouldn't you have one for the most important aspect of life? Your health. Lehigh Valley Health Network. Your health deserves a partner. Learn more at lvhn.org. There is nothing tastier than a fresh homegrown potato. And that includes tomatoes. I'm Mike McGrath, and on the next thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden, we'll reveal how you can grow your own without digging into the ground. Plus your fabulous phone calls. That's on the next You Bet Your Garden.